This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Well, hello there. How's your day going so far? It is five past 12 and great to have you along for the WA Country Hour. Shortly, why Woodside Energy is buying a few Western Australian farms and turning them back into native vegetation. Also, WA pork producers are really starting to think about what they are going to do when the federal government's freight assistance comes to an end. Now, when COVID-19 kicked in, the passenger plane stopped coming and the industry and several of the industries really relied on that freight space, cargo space in those passenger planes to get product to the markets they've established over many years. And those planes stopped going, freight costs went through the roof and obviously that assistance from the federal government really helped out. But it's not going to last forever. So what other options are on the table? You'll find out before the news headlines at half past 12. And a new federal government committee report has made a number of recommendations to help solve current labour shortage problems in industries like agriculture. It could be summarised as a working holidaymaker program. It recommends one-off payments to fund worker travel and accommodation costs and a holiday-at-home gap year scheme. Federal Liberal MP and committee chair Julian Lisa thinks these recommendations are realistic and would be effective if enacted. The most novel and important of the recommendations, I think, is the Have Gap Year at Home campaign to attract young people to go out and to, uh, instead of going overseas for a gap year, to, to stay here in Australia and have a gap year. It really is the reciprocal part of those foreign backpackers that come to Australia every year. Australians usually go overseas. This is a chance to see them come home and stay here and undertake this important uh, uh, harvesting. Now, this, Secondly, we've got... Just quickly go on. on that, this, that's a measure that the state government here in Western Australia has already proposed. It's been met with some scepticism from the industry, particularly horticulture, because they're saying that um, perhaps it's uh, a measure that is not going to realistically address historical issues with attracting local workers. I mean, how, how do you envision that playing out? Well, I think there's two things to say there. First, that uh, this is a recommendation that's been proposed to us by people in the agriculture and horticulture sector, and we're very much responding to and embracing that that recommendation. The second thing is young people can't travel overseas at the moment uh, in the way that they would have otherwise done. Um, people are looking for a sense of adventure. This is a great place to go and have, have an adventure and to earn a bit of money and to participate in the uh, harvesting in an absolutely critical industry. Uh, I know young people are always looking to make a contribution. This is a time where Australia needs them, and uh, I call upon all young people to to look at taking up this uh, this opportunity. Yeah. So, so, did you model any of this or that particular recommendation based on what has already been happening here in Western Australia? Look, it's good to hear about the Western Australian program, uh, but no, we, we received lots of information and submissions from different agricultural and horticulture bodies. We've tested these recommendations or this, this particular idea with a range of different witnesses. and It was something that people thought was definitely worth looking at. And we're suggesting uh, that as an incentive for people to take up this program to have a discount on uh, HEX or HELP for, for those that, that do undertake the program. Now, what are the other recommendations? There's quite a few that fall under the federal government jurisdiction. What are we looking at? 
So we're looking at ways also of getting unemployed people to do some of this work. Unfortunately, the experience of getting unemployed people to, to do harvesting work hasn't been great, even where there's been incentive payments paid in the past. And we know at the beginning of the pandemic, unemployed people were looking to do this work and then job seeker and job keeper uh, arrangements came in and inquiries fell away. So what we've proposed is that people be able to remain on job seeker uh, if they're doing low-paid agriculture and horticulture work. We've promoted incentives for people to, to go to, uh, to to these hard-to-reach regions with uh, accommodation and uh, some sort of travel payment to make it easier to get people there because that was an issue that, uh, that had been raised repeatedly with us. Now, a lot of these kinds of reports have produced Senate inquiries, joint inquiries, lower house inquiries, and they end up sitting on a shelf collecting dust. How do you see these measures moving forward? Well, I think the first thing to say is this isn't the final report of this committee. We, we're due to report at the end of the year. And we've decided as a committee that we needed to produce this interim report because we kept getting evidence from people in the agriculture and horticultural sector of the importance of addressing the shortages now. And we know the government is considering these things actively. We've been hearing from lots of stakeholders and been considering these matters for a couple of months. And we wanted the government to have the benefit of our consideration uh, and our thought. It's a unanimous bipartisan report. Uh, and I think uh, it will have an impact. So do you see, in terms of the parliamentary process, it can take some time for these to be adopted. Do you see that this, given that it is a bipartisan report and it is a pressing issue, that um, we might see some of these measures fast-tracked in, in the form of legislation? Well, not all of these measures will require legislation. That's the first thing to say. And, you know, obviously the government is actively considering these er these issues now. They are hearing the same sort of reports that, uh, that we are hearing. So I know they'll be taking th this report seriously. And so what happens now? Uh, well, look, the government will uh, will have a look at the uh, recommendations we've made and they'll come up with a package uh, uh, to address the, the shortages and... Uh, we will uh, continue our inquiry and report again at the end of the year. 11 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Federal Liberal MP and Migration Committee Chair Julian Lisa speaking to Jessica Hayes. In Parliament yesterday, WA's Agriculture Minister Alana McTiernan welcomed these recommendations. But despite bipartisan support for this proposed Gap Year at Home scheme, WA's Shadow Agriculture spokesman and Liberal MP Steve Thomas still thinks the state government's work and wander out yonder campaign falls short. No, I haven't changed my mind. I think the work and wander out yonder campaign is utterly inadequate and is unlikely to succeed. Uh, and simply because a federal parliamentary committee has something a bit similar, uh, I don't think the government can use that as backup for their position. Everybody's just reading the one recommendation and thinking this is justification for the state government, and I don't think that's what the committee meant. If you read Recommendation 10 of the committee, they say that the Commonwealth should continue to work with the states and territories with their, on their program to bring in labour from COVID-safe countries, particularly the Pacific Islands and New Zealand. And maybe that is a bit of a vindication for the Liberal position, but we did speak to Julian Lisa, who was the chair and the Liberal MP of that, and he said the most important part of this was the recommendation that they do a campaign. Would you disagree with that? 
Well, I think that an advertising campaign in the circumstances of Western Australia is not the, the primary focus. We've had the capacity for children and school leavers to take a gap year for a long time. Many of them do that already. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to go out to the agricultural sector. A very small number of graduating students who take their gap year have gone out to the agricultural regions in the past, and that's why we have absolutely relied on backpackers and international workers to get that work done. Uh, I don't see anything in the current advertising campaign that's going to change that outcome. Is your position on this purely political when you look at this committee that's made up of a mix of all different people from all, all sides of the political spectrum? Is your criticism then against the WA government just purely political? No, absolutely not. I mean, this is about getting results. This is about being able to pick the fruit, shear the sheep, and and get the get the wine in the bottles. And uh, the current proposals simply don't appear to be able to deliver any of that. Uh, it's not politics at all. I mean, it, just because a cross-party uh, committee recommends something doesn't mean that it's accurate. And you'll find that there are plenty of committee reports floating around uh, that governments of both persuasions, both Liberal and Labor, have not agreed with in the past and will not agree with in the future. Uh, a parliamentary committee doesn't always get it right. State Opposition Agriculture's spokesperson, Steve Thomas, with Jackie Lynch. You can read more on that story online. Just search ABC Backpacker Inquiry and Job Seeker. 14 past 12. Well, this morning on Russell and Nadia's breakfast show here on ABC Radio, the Premier was asked a few questions relating to solving this labour shortage problem. Uh, just quickly, uh, WA, uh, you're yet to sign up to the Agricultural Worker Movement Code, um, which would allow correct. farm workers to move freely between the states. And correct. of course, we know farmers and people that run orchards are screaming out for workers. Uh, will you sign up to that? Well, um, I'm not going to rule it out, uh, but as it currently stands, no. And the reasons behind that is the real problem with farm labour is getting people from overseas. It's not actually people moving around the states. It's overseas workers because they're normally the seasonal labour. New South Wales, you know, someone in Sydney who wants to go and do some farm labour can go to the Riverina. Same as Victoria. Queensland, they can go to the Darling Downs. All that sort of thing can happen over there. I mean, the likelihood of them flying to Western Australia to do it is, is remote. What we've got to actually do is get West Australians out there to do this work at this point in time. So we launched a program last week of uh, assistance in terms of accommodation and travel for West Australians going and doing that seasonal work in our agricultural sector. You can get up to $4,000 tax-free to go and do it if you want to. We launched a program, Work and Wander Out Yonder, to get people out there to you know explain the benefits of going living and working in regional WA. But you're not going to know how effective that has been until people start lodging rebates, which is still at least a month away. No, but the advertising campaign is linked to our various websites, Seek and Studium and these websites that link employers and applicants. And I'm told there's huge interest in it. So that's a good thing. But the third thing... Which interest be, is one thing people actually going, is Yeah, it? well, we're doing what we can. But the third thing needs to happen is job seeker payments need to be excluded. So in other words, you can get your job seeker payment and you can go and do a bit, do a bit of seasonal work on a farm and you can keep the money. And has mm. the PM come back to Well, you I that? think they're going to. I think they're going to because I've seen some words. Um, so I've raised this twice now with uh, Scott Morrison. I've seen the National Party Minister, David Littleproud, is now making positive noises about it. So I'm hopeful they'll announce something shortly. I've been on their case now for months about this. That's the only way we're going to get a ready workforce out there, you know, a large workforce out there, 
Uh, if you can let university students maybe get a holiday on the hex, if you can let people on JobSeeker go and get a bit of extra cash, that's what we've got to do. This is getting urgent. Um, when do you think that will likely happen? You, you've got a good feeling about well, it. Well, um, I've just seen some comments by David Littleproud, hopefully yep. in the next couple of weeks. Right. Okay. We'll follow that very closely. Let's quickly squeeze in a call from Bill. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. Yeah, Premier, I was just wondering, um, my name's Bill Stevens from Barcelona. I'm quite willing and able to go out the uh, wheat belt and do some work. But uh, I'm on a pension, and uh, old age pension that is, and um, I'll find out I'm only allowed to earn $300, so it's not worth me while driving to go over there. That is the problem, Bill. I'm pleased you raised it because a lot of people, we need some seasonal labour for picking fruit, for helping with the harvest, all of that, going to Carnarvon and picking, uh, picking things up there, all of that. We need seasonal labour. So uh, if people on uh, either the pension or job seeker are going to not be any better off by going doing that work, well, they're not going to do it. So all we're saying to the Commonwealth Government is this one season you need to allow seasonal labour to get out there in this time when we can't have backpackers and overseas workers come in and keep their welfare and get a bit of cash on the top. This is a once-off. And I've said it to them now lots of times. They have to do it because it's getting urgent. Premier Mark McGowan answering a few questions on labour shortage issues on ABC Radio this morning. 18 past 12. This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Australia might be no closer to working out a long-term climate and energy policy, but that hasn't stopped one of the country's biggest polluters from making its own way. Woodside Energy, the $18.3 billion oil and gas giant, has snapped up a number of old WA farms to turn them back over to native vegetation. Recently, Chief Executive Peter Coleman paid a visit to one of those properties, Suki Hill, about an hour north of Albany. He says Woodside has plans to dramatically increase the amount of non-productive farming land it restores to native vegetation, but a clearer lead from the Commonwealth would be most welcome. We don't call it a plantation. I think uh, the connotation plantation, uh, people conjure up thoughts in their minds of things that were done 20 years ago around the, the old hedgerows and so forth. For us, this, this is about uh, regreening the landscape and revegetating landscape back to its original shape. Now, of course, what's in it for Woodside? Woodside is about creating what we call carbon sinks. We're finding places that we can get carbon out of the atmosphere to offset some of the carbon that we have in our emissions from our business. And so it makes sense for us. And the relationship that we're now forging and being down here, down here in the southwest is going to be part of a long-term business plan for us. Is it something that you are required to do or is it something that you're choosing to do right now? Where does it sort of sit with respect to Australia's carbon abatement settings? No, it's not something we're required to do at all. It's something, though, that we've committed internally to ourselves and also to our shareholders that we want to help Australia be compliant with the Paris guidelines or the Paris commitments uh, around climate change. And so we're getting ahead of the game. We're basically saying we've got a business that generates carbon emissions as part of its normal manufacturing processes, but you can't wait 10 years for this. You've got to start today, and particularly when you're creating what we call carbon sinks using revegetation of, of native flora, uh, then you've got to start early and that's what we're doing. How would you describe the adequacy of Australia's carbon abatement 
policies and settings right now? Look, I'd say it's early days. It's It's been 10 years, though, as you know, in debate, and particularly in the federal parliament, you're seeing some of the states push some of their own emissions targets. And I think society in total, and we're part of society, has basically said, come on, guys, what's the rules? Uh, let's stop the politicking. Let's understand the rules. What do we need to do? I think most Australians just want to know what we need to do. And once we do, then we can get on about doing that. Is there a sense that at the moment a lot of companies are sort of having to formulate their own plans and so there is a bit of an ad hoc approach? Well, companies certainly are forming their own plans. I I wouldn't call it an ad hoc approach, but it's certainly not following uh, any particular government policy. There are some government guidelines out there in place, what we call a trade-exposed company. We've got some guidelines around our business. We've got to meet those, but it's more around growing business and understanding how do you make a new business sustainable into the future in a world that's going to require us to ensure that our carbon emissions are net zero. What's Suki Hill costing you and what it's part of a package as I understand it what's the overall cost of that? Well we haven't we don't get out there and parade around how much uh, we're spending I know others may do that that's just not in Woodside's DNA we just get on with our business. This is about part of a long-term program that we've had we've purchased four properties in the last 12 months two down here in the southwest two up in the wheat belt Uh, we've just planted those properties so we've now got just over 2200 hectares under planting that's around about 3.6 million trees or native flora that will come from that Uh, so we're well advanced but the numbers are much much larger than that if you think about it we should go from that 2,200 hectares to 50,000 hectares within five years. That's what we're looking for. And this is on non-commercial land. Now, I want, I want to really make sure everybody understands we're not there competing in farming communities for commercially viable properties. We're looking for those properties that are currently not commercially viable, and then we're able to turn it back into what the native vegetation was. I did figure as much, given how rocky this particular ground we're standing on is. <laughs> yeah, certainly, uh, if, if you look at uh, where we are, this is probably land that really should never have been cleared in the first place uh, and has struggled over many, many years to be commercial. So I think this is a, a really good example of the type of land that we're looking for. And that land may be on farms like this uh, that were sold um, in its entirety. It may be that we go and work with existing farmers and they have parcels of land that they want to turn around as well. And so we'll do that in conjunction with our partner, Greening Australia. Is there more the federal government could be doing to provide incentives to companies to you know, make these sorts of investments? And if so, what? Look, the simple things government could do would be really looking at the tax depreciation benefits of it and really thinking about these types of investments in the same way that you would look at research and development, so R&D type tax breaks. But at the moment, we're not looking for that. We're basically saying we have to do the right thing and get on with it. But obviously, once you start to get to scale, some of those government's incentives uh, will be important. Now, state governments also have got a role here. And of course, state governments have got to get the right rules in place around the ownership of carbon. And of course, uh, in WA, some of those rules are, are being cleaned up now as to who actually owns mineral resources, uh, who owns carbon resources, and that's that's an important piece of rulemaking that needs to uh, needs to be done. Woodside Chief Executive Peter Coleman with Daniel Mercer, twenty four past twelve. WA pork producers are trying to figure out what they're going to do once the federal government's international freight assistance mechanism comes to an end. Now, when COVID nineteen travel restrictions came into effect. 
passenger planes stopped flying and producers lost the valuable cargo space they usually rely on to get their fresh produce to overseas markets. The cost of freight skyrocketed and the freight assistance mechanism was launched to temporarily ease the unexpected financial burden and just keep those supply chains open. Dawson Bradford runs a 1,400 sow pig business at Poppininning, about two hours southeast of Perth, and he's also the vice president of the WA Pork Producers Association. Dawson, what's the end date for this assistance? Yeah, well, the federal government one is, is a lump sum, so this is for subsidies out of all of Australia, so WA gets some of that. The bucket of money on current workings, they seem to think, will run out around February, so after that Chinese New Year period for the pig industry. Yeah, and once that happens at this stage, that'll be the end of the funding or the federal federal funding. The industry's got to work out what we're going to do and whether we can... We're, we're looking at other options like sea freight and chilled by sea, but, but there's issues where where we've got to try and develop methods that that works in. It's not like the lamb industry. Pork travel's a bit different. We lose shelf life, those sort of things. So there's work being done long-term for this, but this is not going to be in place by February when this federal money runs out. So we've got to look at other ways of trying to do it. Is there any possibility that the program could be extended? Well, it could do, but at this stage we're working on the assumption that it's not. So industry, the processes are all looking at looking at what we can do and um, th- there is a push of, of meat back into the small goods market as well because there's obviously issues with the supply chains overseas with COVID and ASF disrupting um, the spread or flow of meat around the world. African swine fever you're referring to, which has just been discovered in Germany, I think just last week. Yep, yep. So, yeah, they, they've gone down. So China, Hong Kong, Japan, South Korea, they've all banned imports out of Germany immediately. So um, the Chinese and well, basically all four of those countries will have to source pork from other, other areas now. So it'll have big trade implications around the world. Well, is that an opportunity then for others? Because China is you know, one of Germany's biggest markets and about 63,000 metric tonnes of pork per month from Germany usually goes into China. That's not happening anymore. So China's in a real uh, situation as far as getting access to the protein that they need. Yep, no, for sure. that They've got to find it somewhere, um, whether it's pork or Pork's still the cheapest, but um, whether they swing to other meats. But, yeah, it's they've got to find ways of attracting more meat there and generally price is the way you get, is you get meat to flow where you want it to flow. And does that present any opportunity for Western Australia's pork industry to – I know you've been knocking on that China door for a, a number of years now. Uh, that export market not open to WA producers at this point, but – is that an opportunity or is the, the timing not quite right as far as um, those political tensions that are existing at the moment? Yeah, well, there's certainly issues there. and But long term, it would be silly not to, to try and get our foot in the door there. You'd be silly to put 100% of your reliance on one market, which is where a few industries have come undone. But the pork industry would be silly not to try and get some some foothold in there but we still run the same problems if we're going to go in there frozen we've got to compete with the american or north american product which we just can't compete on price with their with their grain subsidies their energy um, protocol or, or subsidy programs as well 
and just their huge scale, we just can't compete on price. If we go frozen, so that means we need that that air freight market, that premium market, and we run into the problem of just no planes flying again. So it's a real catch-22 for the industry at the moment. And it's not just the pork industry because those flights that are going out sort of a couple of times a week, you've got a range of different products on there, you know, fresh produce that's going out to just keep those markets open. Oh, that's right. It's it's, it's all the high-end um, high fresh WA produce, whether it's grapes or avocados or whatever goes to Singapore and, and up to Hong Kong and these other markets, it's um, without these freight subsidies, none of these products would go because the, the cost of freight ends up being higher than the, the actual raw product themselves. And are those industries that you talk of, are you all working together to try and work out what happens from early next year, sort of February, March, whenever the cutoff is for these uh, government subsidies? Are you working together to try and find a solution? Yeah, certainly the Ag Department is, is doing a lot of work with, with all the groups, all the stakeholders to uh, to work through it, but it will probably end up coming back on industry to, to stand on their own two feet. We, we don't want handouts all the time and, and we can't afford to have a handouts all the time, but we've got to make sure that we maintain these markets through this period and, and once these travel restrictions come off, whenever that, that happens, we need to still have access to those markets because if we let them go now, it's, it's very hard to get a market back. All right, so what happens come next year, say we're into February or March, the subsidies run out, what is the flow-on effect then? I mean, if you wanted to get your own flights out, what would it cost? What would the cost of freight be? The initial talk was the freight, the freight rates went up sort of 4 to 600% on, on what we were paying before. So we can charter flights at the moment, but they're hellishly expensive and, and the... the Singaporean market can't absorb that. Whether the Singaporean market continues, government continues with some of their trade um, or, or freight subsidies, who knows? But but yeah, no, I, I think industry's just got to look at look at different methods and whether that's modifying sea container or shipping chill containers that handle pork that we can get up there. It's a it's only an eight day, seven eight day trip up there, so so it's doable. But we do need a, a fair bit of research into that to make that system work, which won't happen overnight. but And then there's a small goods market. There may be opportunity to, to push more meat into the into the local small goods market where traditionally 70% of the small goods meat has been imported meat. So they're running similar issues in terms of supply chain issues coming out of some of the countries where they're getting COVID in some of the um, slaughterhouses and shutting down chains for for a few weeks or even up to a month. So the actual logistics of getting um, of imported meat at the moment is getting harder as well. Yeah, so that's definitely opened an opportunity. Have those talks progressed very far? Yeah, no, there's definitely some of the small good manufacturers around the country are definitely swinging to to more local meat and, and some of it is, is for marketing and some of it's just because of the, the issues they're having trying to source a product overseas. But... If we can get the consumer to, to keep pushing and certainly APL, the Australian Pork Limited Industry um, Organisation, is certainly trying to push this country of origin labelling and, and trying to highlight to people where the Australian meat is in these small goods, in the small good deli counters. Dawson, thank you so much for being part of the country, Aaron, just talking about that freight issue with us here. Yep, no problems, Belinda. Dawson Bradford from the WA Pork Producers Association. And prior to COVID-19, 
the WA pork industry was exporting around about 150 tonnes of product to Singapore five to six days a week. Today, it's exporting about 70 tonnes of product and just twice a week. 28 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Jonathan Beale is here with an update from the newsroom. Thanks, Belinda. The federal government is demanding the states work with the Commonwealth to lift the cap on returning Australians to 2000 a week. The current cap of arrivals was imposed to ensure the hotel quarantine system wasn't overwhelmed, but the limit has led to tens of thousands of Australians complaining they're being left stranded overseas. Rottnest Island could be reopened as a quarantine facility as part of the move to lift the cap. A former senior defence official and diplomat is calling for urgent action to protect Australians in China after revelations of Australian police identified a Chinese consular official in a foreign interference investigation. The ABC's revealed Chinese consul to Sydney, Sun Yentao, was named in a federal police warrant as part of an investigation into an alleged plot to influence the Labor Party. Alan Bean says the move will make the diplomatic crisis between Australia and China even worse. And a Southwest school teacher has been stood down after she allegedly allowed students to watch a suicide video in class. Parents and teachers were warned about the video a day before about half a dozen students at Bustleton Senior High School watched it. WA's Education Director-General says the teacher's being investigated and students are receiving psychological support. More news coming up, Belinda, at one o'clock. Thank you, Jonathan. 26 to 1. And you just heard from Dawson Bradford, a local pork producer, talking about what the industry's going to do once those freight subsidies come to an end from the federal government, which just really helped them keep that export market door, particularly to Singapore, open. And they've got a few options on the table. But Greg in Newtigate says, how about promoting Australian pork products at home? Go into Coles and Woolies and the majority is 10 to 20 or 30% Australian product. Usually only one option in the product line that is more than 90% Australian. Thanks for that, Greg. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four to be part of the conversation on the text this afternoon. Very shortly, going to talk about how fungicide resistance has been discovered in a sample of barley from the Cunderdon region, just a few hours east of Perth. This is not good news for barley growers today. And shortly, you'll hear from a specialist in this area, Dr. Fran Lopez Ruiz. We'll be here to talk about the implications of that for barley growers here in WA. First, though, it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology to catch up with Matt Bodehoven. Matt, how's it looking around the Southwest Land Division? Yeah, good afternoon, Belinda. Um, on Thursday, we'll have a ridge of high pressure uh, extending across the Southwest Land Division. There'll also be a surface trough through the South Interior and Nuclear, and that'll deepen uh, during the day uh, through the southeast parts of the state. For the Southwest Land Division, though, we'll see showers in the southeast coastal. Rainfall, fairly light, uh, less than two millimetres. Then those showers will ease off in the afternoon. On Friday, that ridge over the Southwest Land Division will be will weaken as a cold front approaches. Uh, mostly sunny conditions throughout the S- Southwest Land Division on Friday. Maximum temperatures increasing two to four degrees over inland parts. A little bit of cloud down the south coast. On Saturday, a cold front will move through the Southwest Land Division, so around the Southwest Capes in the morning, and then extending uh, to uh, central and far eastern parts in the evening. 
Um, showers near the southwest Cape, extending to southern and western parts. Thunderstorms possible near the western south coast. Rainfall-wise, we'll struggle to get to the far eastern parts. Um, we'll see 10 to 15 millimetres near the western south coast and 10 millimetres uh, near Albany. Around the lower west, inland parts of the southwest, up to 8 millimetres through the western parts of the Great Southern and uh, the southwest central wheat belt, uh, less than 3 millimetres, and uh, central parts of the Great Southern and uh, central parts of the uh, central wheat belt, less than 1 millimetre. So really struggling to get to the far east and the northern parts of the southwest land division with that cold front on Saturday. That front will move through there on Sunday and uh, track south of the state. A ridge will develop through the Gascoigne and the cold air will move over the southern parts of the southwest land division. So showers over southern and western parts contracting to the coastal parts in the evening. Small hail and thunderstorms over southern parts. Rainfall wise could see up to 20 millimetres around Albany in the south coastal district. Uh, around 10 millimetres near the Esperance coast. Uh, around 5 millimetres uh, in the Running past the southwest and the lower west districts, uh, but uh, for inland parts around the Great Southern, struggle to get up to one millimetre there on Sunday. And how's it looking in northern and eastern parts then, Matt? Yeah, so with that trough developing through the southeast and eastern parts of the state there on Thursday, uh, we'll see showers and uh, thunderstorms through the Eucla and the South Interior. Rainfall wise, you could see up to eight or nine millimetres through the Eucla, uh, maybe two or three millimetres through the South Interior there on Thursday. Uh, mostly sunny conditions for the remaining parts, uh, maybe a little bit of fog around the Kimberley Coast in the morning. On Friday, uh, that uh, trough will begin to move uh, eastwards, uh, but we'll still see some lingering showers and storms through the Eucla and the far south of uh, the south interior there. Rainfall, maybe another five or six millimetres through those parts uh, before that uh, trough moves eastwards. Uh, but uh, nice easterly winds uh, through the northern parts of the state there. Um, on Saturday, the, we're going to have a trough move through central parts of the state on Saturday, so winds could get quite uh, blowy through the Gascoigne and the, the northern parts of the South Interior, northern goldfields. Might see a little bit of dust through there. Could see a fire weather warning through the Gascoigne and the South Interior. Uh, maybe a very early shower through the Eucla. And then on Sunday, uh, might see a thunderstorm in the far north Kimberley. Uh, Fire weather, massive fire weather warning for the Eucla. A couple of coastal showers near the Eucla there, but uh, fairly windy west southwest winds moving through the goldfields in the Eucla there on Sunday. And warnings this afternoon? Yeah, we've got a strong wind warning, stands pretty much all the way from Carnarvon to the South Australian border. Got a gale warning for the Lewin Coast, fire weather warning for the uh, South Interior today and the adjacent uh, Eucla. Thank you for the rat, Matt. 21 to 1, ABC WA, this is the Country Hour. Just checking the rainfall and there's been a little bit of rain in the southwest and southern coastal regions. A number of locations recording sort of 1 to 3 millimetres, but nothing above that. Uh, by the sounds of it, though, a little bit on the way later in the week for some parts anyway. Also, a total fire ban is in place today for parts of the Midwest, Gascoigne and Goldfields Midlands regions. So in the Midwest, Gascoigne region, Waluna, and then in the Goldfields Midlands region, it's Laverton, Menzies and Nunadaraku.
So today in those areas you can't light, maintain or use a fire in the open air or carry out any activity that could start a fire. If you do, you could be fined a lot of money. This is The Country Hour, 19 to 1. Just before the news that won today, you are off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market. Tracy Kilner has all the details for you on the yarding and the prices. First, though, as I was just mentioning to you a few moments ago, some more bad news for barley growers today. Fungicide resistance has been discovered in a sample of barley from the Cunderdon region, which is a few hours east of Perth. It's the first time barley has shown resistance to this particular type of chemical in Western Australia. Fran Lopez is a fungicide resistance expert from the Centre for Crop and Disease Management. Dr Lopez, should barley farmers be worried about this? Oh, hi, Belinda. I don't know if you can hear me properly. Uh, My connection could be a bit uh, wobbly. Well, um, I can yeah, hear you perfectly. Office. Do you think barley excellent, growers excellent. should be worried about this, Dr. Lopez? Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, this is uh, this is actually very similar to what we have seen in South Australia just last year uh, with uh, Netform NetLodge. Um, fortunately, uh, the level of uh, resistance that we have found here in Western Australia is lower. Just just to clarify something that you said below before, Linda. Um, so it, it wasn't just one sample. So we collected 124 samples from 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 the region of Kandering, and, and we found the resistance in several of them. Um, so we found the resistance originally in one sample that was provided by uh, Dan Taylor from uh, CKT Rural Agency, which actually has been helping us a lot. So that's how it's actually come to your attention from one of the local agronomists in the Kandering area. Yeah, so um, we, we've got good connection with the industry uh, in terms of fungus resistance analysis and monitoring, and from time to time we receive uh, samples from them. So in this case, Dan um, actually quite nicely he dropped by with a sample um, that he collected from one of the paddocks around Thunderding, and and we analysed it um, and found uh, resistance in that sample, which is actually quite quite um, remarkable because if you consider just one plant out of the paddock, and that plant already actually has resistance. Um, sorry, not the plant, but the, the disease on the plant. So that probably means that the resistance has to be at a very high frequency in that paddock. So this obviously triggered a whole operation uh, where actually Dan was supporting us um, with uh, with a lot of uh, intel information around what paddocks to visit. So. We went around Canderding and we sampled uh, five different paddocks. So this is all around 10 kilometers around Canderding. Uh, and, and we collected 124 samples that then we're, we're analyzed in the lab. And I'm happy to discuss the results if you think it, this is interesting. Yeah, what did you find? Well, well look, um, half of the samples tested uh, sensitive, which is, which is actually really good. Um, only 3%, just under 3% of the samples tested uh, fully resistant to, to group 7 chemicals, SDHI. But the very concerning information that we could extract out of this analysis is that 40 or more than 40% of the samples uh, were showing something that we call reduced sensitivity. So this is, this is, a, this is a, a obviously um, not full resistance, 
but and we don't get to see you know an effect as evident in the field. But the way that we perceive it in the field as a pharma is that the treatment is not working as it was working before. You know, um, we don't get to achieve the same level of control as we as we should be expecting. Um, we don't get a we don't get a full failure. Um, we don't get paddocks that clearly you know the disease is just going going totally amok. But we can perceive an uh, an effect. And this is just because the mutations that are found in the resistant strains and the reduced sensitive strains are different. And this is what we found there. So different mutations in the different groups. But with so that forty forty percent of your samples having that reduced sensitivity to the fungicide, does that mean it's sort of one step away from being completely resistant? Well, that clearly means that we are selecting for resistance. So yes, in to some to some extent we could say that yes, we are one step away. Although nature is a bit more complicated than that, and sometimes that step away can take you know several seasons to actually you know go from from there to the full resistance status, or, or can be actually very quickly and just you know within the same season it goes from resistant to resistant. So it can be even more complicated than that, and and and. And this is all going to be dependent on the management that growers put into place going forward. Just to recap, this um, you've discovered this resistance in spot form of net blotch in some barley in the Cundedon area here in WA. And the sort of um, fungicide chemicals that it's resistant to, you said the Group 7. What are the common names for that, Dr Lopez? Well, I mean, uh, Group 7 is one of the main mode of actions uh, that are used in agriculture worldwide. Um, so we've got different mode of actions, and, and unfortunately, growers can have access to, to some of them. Um, so within the Group 7 category, we've got, certainly we've got several different products. And some products are combinations of different mode of actions, right? Like, for example, Group 3 and Group 7. And some other products will be uh, just containing uh, the only uh, group seven mode of action. So, for example, common names uh, that contain um, group seven chemicals are Fistila, uh, Evergo, uh, Aviator. Uh, there are a few others, um, but these are actually, you know, just some examples. All right. So given at least one popular fungicide brand which uses this mode of action was only released a few years ago, how much of a concern is this discovery? Well, this is, I mean, we, we are not discovering something new here. I mean, the, the mechanisms by which the pathogen becomes resistant might be new. But the resistance of group 7 chemicals is, is known for a number of years already overseas. Um, now, we, 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 we know that resistance develops quite quickly to, this, to these chemicals. Um, so I guess that the concerning point here is how is the industry going to react? Obviously, these compounds are very effective and they are really good at controlling disease and they offer plenty of opportunities in terms of um, uh, windows uh, when we get to spray them. But um, we also need to to bear with the problem that um, resistance develops quite quickly if we, if we overuse them. So I guess um, it is a very concerning problem uh, if your um, management practice is not going to change, meaning that you know you're going to keep relying on this product, but you know it offers also possibilities. 
offer the possibility to explore different management practices. And, you know, um, let's be clear, there are plenty of solutions. Um, so fortunately, we've got really good experts around around the state and the country, and, and the solutions are just there. So what advice do you have for growers then? Okay, so um, look, um, we, we don't have to be pessimistic here. Um, so yes, there is resistance, but um, this is not the first time, and people live with it, um, so we keep farming. Um, so obviously, the management that you deploy in a region where resistance has been found and is at high levels has to be dramatically different from the management that is happening in a region where resistance hasn't been found yet. So if, if, you're, if you're talking about the growers specifically affected in this, in this region standarding, so I would recommend, and this is something that I say with a, with a, with a, with a backup of um, um, my colleagues, um, not to use a VHI. Uh, in the parties affected, because just the use of SDHI is just going to keep selecting for uh, higher levels of resistance. So the other the other thing that we have to do is just to to make sure um, that we keep a healthy rotation uh, in that paddock. I am aware that in some regions, especially in the parties that we visit, like Hunterdin, so these rotations are sometimes not possible. Um, but we're going to see this problem in regions where we've got a value-in-value rotation. And this applies to any other crop. So when we rotate, you know, crops um, like poorly, so we're going to have these problems happening more and more. And so being um, stubble-borne diseases, the management of the stubble is going to be critical. If we, we cannot establish a healthy rotation, crop rotation in the paddock, so we really need to consider how we're going to be managing the stubble because they infected the stubble from the previous season if they're not going for the next. And, and, and that's something very important, something very important that growers need to keep in mind and as agronomists, is that this selection of resistance also happens on the stubble. So the stubble is infected with the pathogen and when we spray our crops, we are also spraying the stubble. So the management of the stubble, the rotation of the crop, and obviously the rotation of the chemistry. If we don't rotate the chemistries, it doesn't matter what what, what we do with the other with the with the, with the other options. So we're going to keep developing uh, resistance. And um, obviously, there is uh, there's a problem here, and and is the over reliance on susceptible varieties. So um, I am again aware that for for a number of diseases, we don't have um, high levels of resistance and it's resistance. Um, but we have to we have to probably break away from these very susceptible varieties and and try to use more resistant varieties because that's going to contribute to a lower amount of inoculum in our paddock going forward. Really good to talk to you. Thank you for that. Dr. Fran Lopez is a fungicide resistance expert from the Centre for Crop and Disease Management. And just repeating that fungicide resistance has been discovered in a sample of barley from the Cunderdon region a few hours east of Perth. Nine minutes to one. There are urgent calls from some farmers for Australia to find better ways to engage with China. This is in response to the news that China's decided to take a much closer look at all wheat imported from Australia. Most industry commentators seem to think China's action isn't due to genuine biosecurity concerns, but more in the context of a deteriorating trade relationship 
between Canberra and Beijing. Darren Moore farms grain and sheep at Amalup, just north of Albany, and he's urging our politicians and industry leaders to try harder to improve those relations. My heart sank a little bit seeing it reported because, you know, that seems to be a prelude. You know, we all remember the barley thing. It was ticking along. Um, CBH was certainly making great representations to the World Trade Organisation, proving that, you know, we hadn't been dumping. And certainly if we had been dumping, I'd like to know where all my subsidies are because I didn't get any kickbacks from that. So, um, yeah, I think pretty pretty sure we weren't dumping. And then, you know, there seems to be a little bit of political heave-ho and, uh, and the tariff went on. Uh, and our price dropped $30 a tonne. So do you feel as if this could be a bit of history repeating with wheat? I think we are being subject to forces outside of our control and it certainly is um, is very disappointing and I'm no expert on foreign policy but um, we seem to be used, being used as a bargaining chip in certainly the US-China spat that's going on and, uh, and Australia has been sucked into it. Some of our politicians are going along with that willingly. When issues of trade get talked about i mean they you know kind of tend to go to a pretty high level because you're talking about the top of one government making decisions in response to the actions of another government and so on and often the commentators operate at a fairly high level but these very much go back to the grassroots really don't they so to what extent is the average farmer and are you exposed to these sorts of ructions we're very exposed because it, it affects our bottom line. You know, that, that $30 a tonne that we're missing from our barley price, debt that won't be retired at the end of the year. So is, you know, money that won't get spent in the local community. And um, it's very disappointing because, you know, we'd, we spent so much time in the last 20 years building up these rules-based systems with the World Trade Organisation and, and free trade agreements and, and all sort of things. And, uh, and we seem to be slipping back into this sort of nationalistic America first or China first or, or whoever it is where, you know, the big boys will push everyone else around. So what do you really hope is going to happen? I mean, it doesn't seem to be getting any better between Beijing and Canberra. It's still escalating uh, if this week is any indication. What is your message, I suppose, to anyone listening in Canberra? I just wish that we could have more of a middle way. You know, the Americans are our friends and allies and, you know, they'll, they know we've always, we'll always be there for them. But we shouldn't just follow in. We've got to look after our own national interest as well. And our national interest is in trade with China as well and uh, and making sure we have a good relationship with them. There is a very strong view that Australia is sticking up for its national interests in not kowtowing to China's bullying, for want of a better word. Do you think there's more nuance to it than that, though? I think so. I think in the broader scheme of things... You know, the U.S. have made no secret that they want to shore up the balance of trade uh, with China. And you have this sneaking suspicion that that once that's done and that that involves agricultural products, that they'll be all friends with China again. And there's no doubt the Chinese are bad actors. We knew that before. This hasn't happened in the last six months with the event of COVID. It's just, you know, the rhetoric that surrounds it, everything that China does, there seems to be a reaction to it, which is not helpful, I don't think. The government doesn't seem to be even better announced that they're uh, extending English language classes for m- new migrants without making it about China. And uh, they just need to step back a bit and uh, so more of a middle line. Amalup grower Darren Moore 
talking to Daniel Mercer. And as Daniel mentioned, tension between China and Australia seems to be escalating this week. Today, a former defence senior defence official and diplomat is calling for urgent action to protect Australians in China. He's worried about how China might respond to today's revelations that Australian police have identified a Chinese consular official in a foreign interference investigation. The Chinese consul to Sydney, Shan Yen Tao, was named in an Australian federal police warrant in an investigation into an alleged plot to influence the Labor Party. Former diplomat Alan Beam, who was also a federal government foreign policy advisor, believes this will worsen the diplomatic crisis between Australia and China. You are tuned to the Country Hour on ABC WA. It's four minutes to one and very shortly you are off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Coming up on The World Today, don't go too early but don't leave it too late. We hear from the experts who explain why opening up economies and state borders during the pandemic could be more difficult than you think. And politicians are telling us the importance of maths and science but in reality, the federal government's university shake-up could undermine STEM courses. Join us for those stories and more from across Australia and around the world on The World Today. And Mick has just shot through this text. He liked what Amalup grower Darren Moore was saying when it comes to Australia and China. Mick says, finally, someone with a brain discussing China on the country hour. Well done, Darren, says Mick. Thank you for that. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. If you've got something to say on the text to the markets now, and numbers were up by twelve hundred head at today's Catanning sheep market, with a total yarding of eight thousand four hundred and nine. Tracy Kilner has been keeping an eye on the proceedings. Tracy, what was in the mix today? The yarding was dominated by mature sheep, with prices fluctuating on quality and demand, finishing down on most categories. A pen of extra heavy weathers carrying a fleece topped at $150, while the best ewe mutton reached $142 a head. Lamb prices eased on quality, with heavyweight lambs selling to $132, and new season lambs topped at $118 a head. The new season lambs were lightweight, and they made from $72 to $118 a head. Old season air freight Weight lambs under 16 kilos sold from 60 to 85 and from 75 to 114 for the heavier categories. Trade weight lambs, including merinos, sold from 100 to 132, while the heavier lambs returned from 120 to 125 dollars a head. Young merino ewes sold processors for 100 to 121 dollars, while restockers picked up the balance for 40 to 93 dollars a head, depending on quality. Mutton ease ten to twenty dollars overall, with re- reduced demand from processors. Extra heavy ewes sold for one hundred and twenty to one hundred and thirty-five dollars a head. Heavy ewes over twenty-four kilos carcass weight made from one hundred to one hundred and forty-two dollars, carrying a fleece. And medium weight ewes and boners sold from seventy-eight to one hundred and twenty-nine dollars, carrying a fleece. Lightweight ewes sold from twenty-five to eighty-five dollars a head. Mature weathers sold from $125 to $150 for heavyweights. Lighter weights made from $60 to $94 a head. Young hoggett weathers returned $89 to $125 for the heavier weights, while stores and lightweights sold from $45 to $49 a head. A large selection of rams on offer saw prices ease. For heavy younger rams sold to processors from $50 to $99. Mature and store rams sold from $20 to $40 a head.
The heavy ram lambs made from $103 to $124 and lightweight ram lambs sold for $76 to $88 a head. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you for that, Tracy. And be here tomorrow because Ben McNamara, the General Manager Operations with the CBH Group, will be live here on the Country Hour just to go through preparations for the harvest ahead. One o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.